So um, how many of you are, are familiar with Champion Basketball here in town? Any of you? A lot of you have been part of that program, right? It's, it's a great program. Developmental uh, basketball. Kids learn to dribble, learn to shoot, you learn to you know, play. And it starts quite at a young level. Um, and you know, the coaches are on the floor with the kids, and they're there, the referees, and all that kind of stuff. And so yesterday, I got to do the halftime talk at, at Champion Basketball up at, at Calvary Evangelical Free, and it was really cool. But the, the kids I was with were seven-year-olds, right? And some of the concepts are not quite clear yet. Uh, dribbling, right? So one, you know, one kid, a couple of times, he dribbled, and he stopped, and the defender got up in his face, and then he dribbled again, you know, without passing. So he wasn't quite under the understanding the concept that he needed to touch somebody else before he could dribble that ball again. So double dribble, we kind of worked on that. And also just calling a play. And so here's what happened, if, you're, if you understand kind of, um, you know, kind of what setting a screen is in, in basketball. It was a double screen. The, the kid was coming up to the top of the key, right? And then two of his teammates got on both sides of his defender to kind of box in his, his defender, right? And so, you know, there's kind of a, a kind of a glut of players at that point. But the kids are also taught in defense to guard their man. So you have the two players that were, were, were you know, giving a screen, and then their opposite players were getting next to them. And so you had, you know, you added in more kids. And then all of a sudden, some other kids were coming in close to, to pass, you know, so, here, here, I'm right here. And then their defenders kind of came in. And so there's this huge amoeba of kids at the top of, of the key, right? And, and there's one, one defender that's not there yet. And then the, the kid who's heading the ball, he realizes, hey, everyone's bunched up here. I'm just going to go around and drive to the hoop. And so he runs around, and the kid sees him. But he's so concerned that he's not guarding his man, he gets up here and just lets the kid go right to the hoop uncontested. So we're not quite clear on the concept of defense yet. But we're getting there. I think some of those things can be true in the Christian life. There are some things that we're not quite clear on the concept. And part of that, I think, is because of our environment. Let's be honest, as American Christians, we enjoy a lot of privileges. A lot of rights that brothers and sisters in the rest of the world don't enjoy. We enjoy freedom of religion, freedom to worship openly. And sometimes we are shocked when that is being challenged. We are shocked when we get some adversity in our own culture. And here's the thing. The prince of the power of the air is still active and alive here, even in the United States, especially in the United States at times. We ought not be surprised. Jesus would tell us that if this world hates you, this is John 15, verses 18 through 20, keep in mind that it hated me first. And if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. It is, uh, as it is, you do not belong to the world. But I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. So we ought not be surprised by the suffering and 
persecution that maybe comes our way and might continue to come. Who knows? Secondly, as Christians, we have to understand that the Christian life is not fully realized. It is not fully uh, rewarded here on this side of heaven. We are not living for the here and now. We are living for eternity. In fact, we are told to sacrifice this, this present life for eternity. Jesus would say this in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 24. He said to them, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for, for me will save it. According to Jesus, you are not going to live your best life now on this side of heaven. There's something greater that's coming. Something greater that God wants to reveal to us when this life is done. We've been going through a series uh, looking at the seven churches of Asia Minor. If you have your Bibles, you might want to crack it open to Revelation chapter 2. That's where we'll be today. But we're going to see these two realities coming into play in what Jesus commands His church in Smyrna to do. So before we dive in, let me pray for us, and then we will look at what God wants to say to us through His Word. So Lord Jesus, I thank You for what we've just sung. You are alive, You are with us, and You're giving us a glorious future. And Lord, I pray that You will help us grasp the concept that we will in this world, we will have trouble. But you have overcome this world, and we can trust you for that. So help us to see what you want to see. Help us to respond how you want us to respond. Help us to repent where we need to repent, and help us to worship where we need to worship. Lord Jesus, it's in your precious name I pray these things. Amen. Revelation, chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death. And I will give you your life, give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Last week we looked at the first church in Asia Minor, which was Ephesus. Great church, hard-working, doctrinally sound. But within all those good things, they had lost track of their first love, the Lord Jesus. This week in Smyrna, we're looking at a church that's under fire. And yet they're summoned by the Lord Jesus to suffer for His sake. To trust Him in the midst of that. I don't know if you noticed from the songs we were singing leading up to this message, but that led to that. But let's get some background in, about Smyrna, first of all. So Smyrna is church number two there. It's about 35 miles north of Ephesus, and it's a city that still exists today. It's called Izmir. 
in, in Turkey. It's a harbor city, and it had a lot of civic pride. It was a very beautiful city. Um, they claimed to be the birthplace of Homer. So if you read the Iliad or the Odyssey in high school, they're saying that came from us. Uh, other towns have claimed that as well, but there's a lot of civic pride. On their coins, it says, we are first in Asia. So they had a, a lot of uh, you know, confidence in who they were. They, they um, sponsored Olympic Games or town games, you know, where people would come from all over to participate, where you know, crowns could be won. Um, they had a place called the Street of Gold that kind of circled around Mount uh, Pagos. It started on one end with a, a temple to Zeus, multiple beautiful um, buildings, and then ended up at a temple for uh, Sibel, which was a kind of an earth goddess type of a thing. But it's called the Crown of Smyrna. But one of the things that was true about, about this city is even though they were all the way over in Asia Minor, they had a special relationship with Rome. Pre, uh, pre-time of Christ, they had kind of thrown their hat in the ring to be on the Roman side when, when Carthage and Rome were in, in battle. And they had made a, a goddess uh, temple to the goddess of Roma in 195 B.C. Later on, they were given, in 26 AD, they were given the privilege to have a temple to Tiberius. So temple, I mean, Caesar worship, Rome worship, was pretty important for that city. They were connecting themselves with Rome. They looked at that as, as, as something that was important to them. It would be a place where oftentimes the word Caesar is Lord would be heard. Well, the gospel coming to uh, Smyrna, that changed. People putting their faith in Christ and realizing that Caesar is not Lord, that Jesus is Lord, and that caused some, some conflict. There was also a large population of Jewish people there. Unfortunately, the Christians and the Jews didn't necessarily get along, and the, and the, and the Jews were all too willing to kind of give up Christians as far as saying, you're not worshiping the emperor, even though they themselves were not worshiping the emperor as well, because they, as Jews, were exempted from that. So we'll talk about that a little bit later. But that's all the details here kind of play into what happened to this church in Smyrna. So the first thing that Jesus calls his people to do is to trust him who is Lord of all. Again, let's look at the greeting. To the angel of the church of Smyrna, These are the words of him who was first and last, who died and came to life again. He is Lord of all. First of all, he is Lord over history. He says, I am the first and I am the last. We read these words actually earlier in the chapter beforehand in uh, chapter 1, verse 17. He's basically saying, I am the beginning, I am the end. I was there when history came into being. I was there to create And I am the one who's taking history where I'm going to take it. And your days are in my hands. I've got you. These words are kind of being echoed from what happens in Isaiah 44, verse 6, where Yahweh, the Lord, says, and this is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. 
Jesus is saying, I am sovereign over history, and you can trust me. Also, he says, he is the Lord over life and death. He who died and came to life again. Obviously, this is pointing towards Jesus' death on the cross, and then his resurrection, rising from the dead, to conquer a foe that you and I could not conquer. Jesus himself, if you're familiar with his life ministry, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, in chapter 11 of, of John, said this in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though they die, yet shall they live. I am the Lord of life. And you can trust me, even with the things that are coming your way. Be confident that I have your eternity in, in my hands. But here's also one thing I want you to, to notice. That what this church is about to go through, what Jesus is going to ask them to do, he's already gone through. He's already gone through persecution. He's already gone through suffering. He's already gone through losing his life and being risen from the dead. He's saying, I have gone before you, and I will not leave you nor forsake you. And I will care for you even through this arduous process. So that's what Jesus is trying to identify. It's like what we were talking about when we were going through Philippians. To have intimacy with Christ when we experience the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Sometimes we learn more about Christ going through our sufferings than we do when things are going really well. So, a call to trust Him who is the Lord of all. Number two, a call to trust Him whose values are different than the world's. Listen to this, verse 9. I know your afflictions and your poverty. This is a church that is experiencing persecution from the citizens in their own city, their next-door neighbors. It literally could be translated tribulations, if you will. He says, I know them. And they're experiencing poverty because economic sanctions have been put over them. They're being leveled against them. Perhaps even the destruction of their property, maybe even the confiscation, as Hebrews chapter 10, verses 39 talks about. But here's a question. Let's say you or I moved into Smyrna. We're looking for a church. Would we be looking for a church that's experiencing tribulation or experiencing poverty. And those might be strange things to be looking at or looking for, if you will. And I'm not suggesting that as, you know, something, but what Jesus is saying, this is happening because of your loyalty to me. This is happening because you're holding on to me and this world is rejecting you just as they're rejecting me. You're identifying with me. You see, this world, what it values is power, influence, resources, wealth. In the eyes of this world, this church doesn't seem like much. But Jesus turns around and says, you are rich. You are rich because you have my riches that are going to last forever. A, world, a wealth that this world knows nothing of because it's rooted in their faith and trust and loyalty towards the Lord. In fact, the, the Apostle James, who is Jesus' half-brother, he says in James, his letter, James chapter 2, 5, it says, has God, 
has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of this world to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? You know, one of our privileges is to be connected with churches all over the world, in Haiti, in Cuba, in India, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and their resources pale in ours. But I will tell you, the privilege has been to see their faith, that they are rich in faith. They are trusting God. And sometimes I envy them, because I think sometimes we lean on our own earthly resources above that of the Lord. Sometimes I feel like that's we all we have is the Lord, but the Lord is enough. Would we be holding on to Him if we were in their shoes? I've got this quote written down in my Bible by Adabed Tozer. It says this, What we need very badly these days is a company of Christians who are prepared to trust God completely now as they know they must trust at the last day. For each of us, the time is coming when we will not we'll have nothing but God. Health and wealth and friends and hiding places will be swept away. And we shall have only God. To the man of pseudo-faith, that is a terrifying thought. But to the real faith, it is one of the most comforting thoughts the heart can ever entertain. If all I have is God, is it enough? Jesus says, Yes, it is. You are rich. If you have me, you are rich. And he continues on to say, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews, but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now here it was a sad reality. These are Jewish people living in, in Smyrna. And they considered themselves to be the people of God. But they were actually slandering, blaspheming, if you will, the followers of the true Messiah. And thus they were doing the work of Satan. Satan means adversary or accuser. About 80 AD, most Jews in that area decided that Christians, followers of Christ, and remember, the first followers of Christ were Jews. This is not an anti-Semitic statement. But they decided that they were heretics. And so they didn't come under the privilege that they enjoyed under the Roman Empire to worship only God and not have to worship the emperor. And so they kind of threw the Christians under the bus. So saw it as an opportunity to, you know, kind of shine the light on them Versus shining the light on themselves because Rome wasn't always happy with the Jewish people as well. They didn't come under that unique umbrella. And so this hostile accusing of Jews made them a, well, Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan. You're not living for the Lord, you're living for the accuser. The Apostle Paul kind of comments on this in his epistle to the Romans, chapter 2, verses 28 through 29. A person is not a Jew who is only one outwardly, nor a circumcision merely outward and physical. No. A person who is a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, by the Spirit, 
not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. You see, being a part of the people of God in the new covenant was not about your earthly origin. It wasn't about whether you have kept the Old Testament law. It's about whether you put your faith in Christ, whether the Holy Spirit has been at work in your heart. And unfortunately, these people were denying what God was doing in the hearts of his people. You know, there are plenty of people who say that they are people of God. Yet when they see the exclusive claims of Christ, they jettison them. They deny them. They, in fact, they'll call us for upholding them bigots or, you know, narrow-minded. And they'll slander us because the claim that, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him seems intolerant. But when we do so, we're not quoting ourselves, we're quoting Jesus Himself. It was God's unique Son. Unfortunately, our worship is too grounded in humanity rather than is who God is and who He has revealed Himself to be. And so, again, persecution came. And unfortunately, this is very true for our brothers and sisters overseas. But again, Jesus is saying, I value this. I value you. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of things, of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice, be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's not calling us to end up in conflict with people, but it's calling us to stand up for Christ. And say, if you're persecuted for my name, then you're blessed. You know, the word martyr, I think many of you know that, means witness, literally. But oftentimes, when we witness about Jesus, we do get persecuted, and we do pay a price. And this is a call to trust Him and persevere in the midst of persecution. Verse 10, Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you, well, you, you life as the victor's crown. You know what's interesting is if you go through the seven churches of Asia Minor, Smyrna and Philadelphia are the, are the only two churches that don't have corrective statements to, to the, the church. Jesus has nothing corrective to say to Smyrna or Philadelphia. Yet he tells his faithful church, they're about to suffer. You've been faithful, and now you're about to suffer. And in our flesh, sometimes we think, what do you mean, Jesus? I've been faithful. Shouldn't you be blessing me? Well, I, I am, actually. I'm blessing you to suffer for my name. How would you respond if, if you heard that word from Jesus? Like, well, what, what do you mean? I'm going to suffer? In this case, he says, I'm actually blessing you. And I'm calling you to perseverance. He says, I tell you, the devil will come 
and put some of you in prison to test you. You know, it's interesting when, in the Scripture, when God is testing somebody, it's not so God can find out some information about somebody, because He already knows. In the Scripture, when God tests somebody, it's really to show us something about ourselves. This is there to test the faith of the people of Smyrna and their heart. That their faith would be proved genuine as they hold on to Him. And what's also interesting is it says, it's the devil who's going to do this. So, yeah, the, the devil's at work here. But God who's allowing it for His purposes. Here's my point. God is sovereign even over the devil. Did you know that? That's what we find out in the book of Job. That's what we find out here. As Martin Luther says, yes, he's the devil, but he's God's devil. To bring about his purposes. For God's sovereign purposes to refine and purify his people. Jesus says it's going to be, they're going to be persecuted for ten days. I'm going to tell you there are like six or seven different ways to understand this. I'm not going to unpack them all before you, okay? But if it's not a literal ten days, then it's a time that's long enough where you're meriting persecution, but short enough to know that there's an end to it. This will not go on forever. There's real merit in that persecution. You're going to suffer. You're going to feel it. But it's short enough to endure and have in sight. Here's also what happens in this passage, though. For some, Jesus seems to indicate that this suffering may be the end of their life here on earth. You'll be done with your race here. You'll be... You'll give up your life for Christ's sake. And historically, this actually happened. In 155 AD, the bishop of Smyrna, a man named Polycarp, was burned alive because he would not worship the Caesar Domitian. And unfortunately, some of the Jewish people were all too happy to help out. According to the ancient account, they were even willing to gather wood on the Sabbath to help this happen, which is sad. But the point is, Jesus is saying, some of you will give up your life for me. But at the beginning of verse 10, look what he says, do not be afraid about what you're about to suffer. And at the end he says, I will give you your life is the victor's crown. I've been stumbling over this because my this is a new translation of the NIV. And literally, it is the crown of life. You'll receive the crown of life. A reminder that we're living for something greater than this life. The Apostle Paul, a man who suffered more than most for the cause of Christ. This is what he says to the people in, in, in the Corinth. He says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. 
that far outweighs them all. He's not saying it's going to be easy, but he's saying it's going to be worth it. These light and momentary troubles, they are achieving for us an eternal glory that will far outweigh them all. And then the crown of life. And this kind of resonated for these people in Smyrna because they were used to the the games of Smyrna and the the winner of contests winning a, a crown to display, you know, their victory. Be like equating our, our gold medals in our modern day Olympics. And you had public glory. He <laughs> says, this crown is far more better. It's the crown of life. It's eternal. And you'll give be given glory for your faith in Christ. But you know what's interesting? That glory will still re- be reflected back on your Lord. A little bit later in this letter, this um, book of, of Revelation, you read in chapter 4, verse 10, about the elders, 24 elders around the throne of, and worshiping. And what do they do? They throw off their golden crowns in worship. We give you glory, O Lord of life. The Lord of life. Now, as you're listening to this, I don't know where everyone's at in this room. And maybe what's being said here seems over the top, like, oh, you, you Jesus people are crazy. I mean, you know, you're, that seems extreme. Or maybe too good to be true. Or maybe, you know, hey, if, if I really follow Jesus, I've been kind of watching, you know, I'm, I'm afraid that I'm going to miss out. But you have to come to terms with is what Jesus is saying true or not? Is He who He says He is or not? I've, I've, read, I've read this before, this quote, but I love this quote from C.S. Lewis's The Weight of Glory. And I think sometimes, kind of going back to my opening illustration, the concept is not quite clear of what Jesus is offering. He says, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child that wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Do you know what Jesus is offering you? If you put your faith in Him and you follow Him to the end, even if it costs you your life. And here's the other thing I think we all need to consider. Can we not agree that when we look around our world, it is broken. It is broken. And there is no fairness in this world not everybody has the same opportunities that we do yes you know some of us have had some unfair things happen to us but you know push that to a third world country we'd be counting our blessings life is not fair but god who's a god of justice will bring about justice and will bring about fairness and will make it all right We need to understand that when He comes back, He will wipe away every tear. 
that he will right every wrong. He will bring about perfect justice. And for those who trust him, he will make everything new. Your brokenness in your body, your brokenness in your relationships, he will make everything new. And he will transform our lowly bodies, as we read in Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, and it will be transformed in like his glorious body. And I don't know about you, I ain't getting any younger, and I look forward to that day. And so much more. But here's the thing, do we believe Jesus for who he says he was? The one who has risen from the dead. The one who is the beginning and the end. The one who has, was dead and yet is alive. That's the proof of who he is. Either he did those things, those things happened, or they didn't. But this is the offer he makes to us. Do we believe him or not? And so at the end here, he challenges and encourages. Verse 11. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. It is a call to follow suit in faith, secure in the coming second judgment. You know what? Unless Jesus comes back, and he could come back today, tomorrow, we don't know. He's going to come like a thief in the night. But unless Jesus comes back, let's just say he doesn't come back for another 100 years, all of us in this room are going to experience death. One out of one. Nobody's going to escape it. I don't care what technology does. None of us are going to escape that. Whether we experience fierce persecution or not, the question you're going to have to face when you stand before the living God is, what did you do with my son? What did you do with Jesus? Did you put your faith in him? In him living a life we couldn't live? Dying a death to pay a penalty we couldn't pay. Giving us life. Conquering a phone that we cannot conquer. Clinging to Him no matter what. If you do, you will have the victory. You will have the crown of life. What a great reward. And we'll give Him glory forever. If not, you'll face judgment. Because you've rejected what God has offered. You've rejected what He has given. You will face the second death because you didn't receive God's provision. And this is how it's painted in the the second to last chapter of Revelation. Revelation 12, verses 13 through 15. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and the death. And Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. That book of life is the crown of life. Are you crowned with Jesus? In faith in following the Lord of life.
The Spirit is speaking through His Word. If you have ears to hear, hear, listen, and respond. And maybe for you, you've known this, but you've kind of stopped following Jesus. Maybe it's time today to say, Lord, I need to return to you. I need to follow you. Maybe this is information you're finding out for the first time. And that's good. But Jesus wants to give you his life. This is what this same author would say in his epistle, his first epistle, chapter 5 of John's first epistle, verses 11 and 12. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and that eternal life is in his Son. And he or she who has the Son has life. He or she who does not have the Son does not have life. That is the question. Do you have Jesus? Do you have Him? And for those of us who know for sure that we have Him, know for sure that He is ours. Let's not lose sight of these realities when living the Christian life. Yeah, you may, you may experience some persecution. Jesus told us that. Let's not be surprised. And let's remember, we are not living for this world. Along the way, we're going to take some shots. We're going to be disappointed. We may experience disease, hardship, poverty. I don't know what you're gonna, we'll experience. But this is not the end goal. He has an eternal glory and hope for us to lean into. So we don't have to be afraid. And he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He'll be with us every moment. And I'm going to leave you with these words from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. That is the hope we can lean into. So with that, I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask the worship team to come and close us. So Lord, I thank You for this encouraging Word. And I pray, Lord, that You would readjust our our spectacles, if You will, if we have an unrealistic expectation of living a trouble-free life because we're in you, would you help us to see the truth? And when we experience the hardships and the brokenness and the, the fallenness of this world, would you remind us that we are not home yet? That you have something so much more glorious and something that you want to reveal to us that we can't even imagine. But we're grateful. And Lord, if there's somebody today that needs to respond to you, would you give them the grace to do so? Would you give them the grace to say, Lord Jesus, I need you. Come and give me the life that I don't have in myself. You're a great Savior. You're a great Lord. I thank you that you give us your life. And it's in your name I pray these things. Amen.